calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 500th episode of Guiding Assets. I'm Mitch Forst, the show's producer. You normally don't hear much from me. I've been working quietly behind the scenes for all 500 episodes. This show has always been one of my favorite things that I've had the privilege to work on during my career at CFA Institute. To celebrate our 500th episode, we've decided to produce a history-themed show. First, we will start with a brief history of the show itself, told by some familiar voices, and then start weaving in some clips from past guests with a history theme to them. I promise to keep it short and interesting, but I do have one ask of you. As a gift for our 500th episode, if you are a listener who has enjoyed the show over the years, please take a brief moment and go to the app you are listening on and leave us a positive review. Positive reviews help people find the show by improving our placement in search and on the charts. The history of this show dates all the way back to 2007, around the time of the 07-08 financial crisis. I had just started working at CFA Institute. In those days, all media content we were putting out was long form, over an hour in length. Dennis McLevy, CFA, who at the time was in charge of our educational department, came to me with an idea for a short video series addressing financial topics. The concept of reaching a broader audience really intrigued me, so I suggested to Dennis that we make this a podcast in addition to being video content. I'm not sure Dennis grasped exactly what a podcast was when I explained it, but he was willing to give it a try. I went to work researching how to get our new podcast online into the masses. The answer was through an RSS feed, which means really simple syndication, but by today's standards it wasn't all that simple. You had to learn to code the RSS feed in a text editor manually, and then upload it. I figured it all out and signed up for a service called FeedBurner, which helped distribute the RSS feed and track the downloads. We were off. It was really amazing to watch the show grow so quickly. We were charting in the national top 10 in the business category on Apple. By 2009, we had already surpassed 1 million downloads, making it by far our most successful media product. Rob Gowan, CFA, was one of our early hosts of the show. He still works here, now in a very different role in exam development, but at the time was reluctantly nudged into the hosting role. When I think back, it is surprising, as formal of an organization as we are, that we just pushed a number of our hosts into that role without any prior experience or media training. Yeah, in the beginning, we, we didn't have any idea you know, whether or not this was going to be a uh, successful product. So we just grabbed anybody who was willing to go in front of the camera. And, um, you know, it was a little bit disorienting in the beginning, you know, having the lights and, and a backdrop and everything like that. And we used to do single camera interviews and where we would point the camera at the interviewee while we asked the questions. And then the interviewee actually would leave. And then we would ask questions to an empty chair. So um, it looked pretty stilted in the beginning, but I think the editors did a great job uh, trying to piece all of it together. <laughs> I'd forgotten all about that. Back in the early days, the professional video cameras that we used were so expensive that we only had one. So we'd have to shoot the interviewee first and then go back and shoot the host asking the questions later with the same camera. As our longtime listeners know, this show was originally called Take 15, the reason being that we wanted these to be 15 minutes long. Do you remember anything about how we came to that length? I actually think the name 
came first. Like take 15 sounded like a good idea. You know, hey, 15 minutes and you can learn something and, um, you know, uh, take a break in your day, as you said. But the funny thing is, is like we just didn't have an, a good idea of how long people would stay engaged with a video online. And, you know, this is early days of self-created video. We looked at the data and, and, and it, at about seven or eight minutes, people would just start to drop off. So uh, we we learned quickly that we can't hold people's attention for 15 minutes. You know, maybe that's an indictment on our, our content back then. Um, but we reduced things to about seven or eight minutes, kept the name because Take 7 seems like an awkward name for a, for a video product. Yeah, things have definitely changed over time. We played around with the length over the years going all the way up to close to an hour, back down again to 15 minutes. I think now we've settled on a, kind of a sweet spot between the 15 to 25 minute mark, which is pretty good for our content these days. Thanks for dropping by, Rob. Is there any parting message you want to leave with our audience? No, I mean, I, I'm impressed that it's uh, been this successful, and I think it's in uh, large part to the people behind the cameras, not necessarily in front, and the, and the talent that we're able to attract. Um, but, uh, you know, we just we just did the best we could as staff, and, and, it, and it ended up working out, which is great. Well, thank you to you as well for all the efforts you put in to make it a success. Over the years, competition in the podcast industry has exploded. Though you won't see our show in the top 10 anymore, we are still in the top 10% of all business podcasts in the world. It is a testament to the quality of the guests that we have access to that we are still here and still growing. In my mind, that is a major accomplishment considering we operate on a shoestring budget and do not pay to market the show. Our host, Mike Wahlberg, who is an accomplished and award-winning journalist in his own right, actually volunteers his time. He receives absolutely no compensation for everything he does for the show, so a big thank you to you, Mike. Mike, what were your thoughts on accepting this role as a host on a volunteer basis when we first approached you about it? Were you concerned at all that it would take up too much of your time? I was really excited to be approached uh, for it because I've always been a, a really big fan of Take 15 over the years. So it seemed uh, like a really terrific opportunity to, to not only work a bit more with CFA Institute, but also to you know get to know some of these terrific guests that uh, the show has been able to book over the years. In terms of the, t the time, I, I wasn't too worried about it. I mean, I talked to talk to the team there a little bit about what the expectations might be around it but it's been it's been great because I have a you know a terrific team that I get to work with including yourself Mitch and Michael and Jeannie and others to help produce the show every every couple of weeks and also as it happened when the you guys were doing the reboot of the show it was right at a time when I was coming off of a seven-year stint on the board of CFA Society Vancouver so I was just finishing my year as past president and so I actually had a little bit of time that was opening up in my sort of volunteer schedule if you, if you can think of it that way so I felt a little bit more comfortable that I would have the you know the capacity to to put into it and to, to hopefully do a good job for it. I know you were a fan of the show before taking on the hosting role is there any episodes that stand out to you in the history of the show? There was a really great episode in late 2020 where Lauren interviewed Professor William Getzman and uh, so he was talking about John Law in that episode. He's best known for the Mississippi bubble. Uh, in that episode, he, he covers the anatomy of a bubble. So that was, that was really interesting, I thought, from an investing perspective. As a former equity analyst and portfolio manager, the finance insights really sort of appealed to me. As he pulled this so, sort of fantastical episode in, in French and, I guess, pre-American colonial history. And that was really, that was really cool. Later in the episode, to talking about sort of five facts about John Law, the man, which was really, really fascinating. And as a journalist, sort of, sort of the, my second career, I guess, that that use of story really appealed to me, and so I uh, that really stuck with me, and and 
kind of got me thinking about, uh, you know, different ways that, that you can tell financial stories in, in a compelling way and have them be, have them be retained. And, uh, so I really, I really enjoyed that episode and that one really stood out for me. All right. Well, let's pull up a clip from that show. Here's Will Getzman talking about some fun facts about John Law. Well, he escaped from prison because he killed somebody in a duel. So uh, it's rare that you have a murderer rise to become the minister uh, of a nation state. The second thing about him is that he was a renowned tennis player and extremely handsome. His charisma played a part in his ability to reach the heads of state. Finally, as part of his idea about how to create a new economy, he decided that he would try and build up Normandy in France as an industrial center. He was very interested in these new mechanical ways of manufacturing things. And uh, so he found people in Great Britain uh, who were beginning working in uh, Manchester and, and uh, the uh, north of England in new techniques. And he he brought them to France. You know, when people would run up a big bill uh, and uh, get into debt in England, they needed some place to go. He'd say, oh, you know how to build spinner, spinning wheels and so forth. You come to France, don't pay your debts, we'll pay you a lot of money. So there was a colony he created in uh, northern France that was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Of course, the roots of it were already starting to emerge also in northern England as well, or in the Midlands. But he had this idea that France could get onto the forefront of this new uh, industrial technology, and that would be the driver that would help the country move away from a, an agrarian kind of uh, economy towards one that participated in world trade uh, across the Atlantic, but also challenged Great Britain as a manufacturing giant. If you want to listen to that full episode, we will put links to all of the clips that we reference in the show notes so you can find them easily. Mike, your recent episode with Peter Zihan was our most downloaded episode ever, amassing well over 100,000 downloads and counting. Were you familiar with Peter's work before you interviewed him? Well, that was a, that was a real treat for me to be able to meet Peter. Um, I've long been a sort of a, a reader of, of his books and, and writings and uh, followed him online. And so it was a, it was a, it was really cool for me to be able to ask him questions back in uh, in earlier this year in January, and uh, yeah, I just I really enjoyed that episode because he's I mean he's as you know he's a very charismatic and articulate speaker, funny, and and he covered a lot of ground with uh, with a lot of detail, uh, but manages to carry it along in a very entertaining way. So uh, I, I'm not surprised that it was it was a very uh, popular episode with a lot of downloads. Because uh, he's, uh, you know, he's a very interesting, interesting guy. So that's that's definitely a, a highlight in the last uh, sort of year plus that I've been in the in the host chair. Is to be able to to meet and and speak with Peter. Peter has been a longtime friend of the show and of CFA Institute. He's been on several times. We won't play a clip from his most recent episode, but here is a clip from Peter from 2019 when he appeared on the show talking about the new world disorder that is still very relevant with what is going on in the world today. In the world before World War II, everything was imperial. So you had imperial centers in London and Paris and Tokyo and other places that had their own spheres of influence where they would kind of imprint a certain mode of operation. There were certain boundaries on what you could and couldn't do. 
After 70 years of the Americans being in charge of almost everything, most countries have forgotten how to do that. So it's going to take two, three decades for everyone to kind of get their feet back under them. And in the meantime, countries that have based themselves around free market economics and global trade and easily accessible finance, they're the ones who are going to be going through the greatest disruptive processes. Right. So we have to have a considerable cascade of failures before anyone can rise from the ashes. That's going to take 20 years. So, and I know as a part of your thesis and part of what you're talking about right now is you believe that there's something right around the corner that's worse than the global financial crisis. What is it? What are the elements of it? Why do you say this? Well, something that most folks forget is in the world before 45, most markets went to zero. Uh, when we're talking about things like a Russian collapse or a Chinese collapse, we're talking about markets that we know are broken in the normal way of doing things and yet money still flows in. So when you remove the veneer of respectability and the veneer of international stability, and all of a sudden countries have to trade on their own merits. So the idea that any of these locations can be financial destinations evaporates pretty quickly. Uh, if anything, they're going to be sources of absolutely monumental capital flight. China, conservatively in the last seven years, we've had $3 trillion flow out already. So the Chinese are already voting with their checkbooks. It's just a question of how long it is until the people of the Western world, who oftentimes manage the flow of money both ways, registers that. And when that happens, you're talking about a financial catastrophe that is unprecedented in the modern world. I recently caught up with Lauren Foster, who is our most recognizable voice of the show. You will likely remember Lauren as our lead host of Take 15 for many years before she took her next step in her successful journalism career to become a senior writer for Barron's. Lauren, to this day, I still run into listeners who remember you fondly. What really stood out to you during your time hosting the show? Hey, Mitch. It's so great to hear that. And thanks so much for having me back on the show today. I would say two things. The range of topics we covered in each episode and also the quality of our guests. You know, as you remember, we used to tee up each episode with the line that the show offered short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. And I think we succeeded at hosting conversations that mattered to the audience. I always learned something from the guests, whether it was investing lessons from Warren Buffett or what history can teach us about financial markets, which is so relevant today. Well, history is the theme of this 500th episode. We've had so many great guests over the years. Are there any episodes that really stand out to you? Oh, wow, that's going to be tough. It's like asking me for my favorite baby. Uh, there were so many, but I mentioned lessons from history. And one episode that does stand out is my conversation with Jan van Eck, and he is CEO of Vanek. We covered a lot of ground in that one, including one of his favorite historical figures, Alexander Hamilton. Great. Well, I got that clip right here. Let's play it. I graduated an economics degree and didn't know what Alexander Hamilton had done in the United States, which to me is just a tragedy. So my, I guess as yet, my, my main point is learn a little bit about American financial history. I mean, the way, so Hamilton, you have to know him because it basically consolidated all the debt after the uh, Revolutionary War and then worked to give the U.S., the federal government through its new constitution, the ability to pay back that debt through import tariffs. So he basically, you know, gave the U.S. government the ability to, to pay for things and he cleaned up all the, all the debt. And then after that time period, you know, the growth and the number of banks and all this kind of stuff that basically the, he set the, the framework for the growth of, of our financial system, which is, you know, makes it so important. 
Uh, and, you know, we had uh, our first sort of central bank at that time as well. Uh, I'll just very briefly point out that he had to deal with the financial crisis in, in 1791 as well. And what he did is so similar to what Geithner and Paulson did um, after the great uh, financial crisis 10 years ago. It's, it's just it's an interesting story. So I think uh, I, I understand the concerns that uh, Jefferson had about concentration of power and they were just dealing with having to get rid of, you know, King George III. But, uh, you know, I think I think just to understand market structure is so important uh, to how you think about putting portfolios together and, you know, understanding how governments interplay with financial markets. As I look back at this show, one of the things that I've cherished the most is the opportunity to meet so many amazing people. Some of the guests we've had on the show were people I learned about in graduate school. Some of them were the authors of my textbooks I use in classes, and some were actually the pioneers that were written about in these textbooks. One of those people was the legendary Jack Bogle. Here's a quick clip from that episode with Jack speaking about his own legacy and how he viewed Vanguard's role in the investment world. But certainly determination is, uh, anybody would tell you, is something that I'm just, just part of me. And uh, I think most people would realize I've always been kind of spoiling for a good fight, too. And uh, there was no way to know whether I'd win the fight. But if you don't undertake the fight, you'll never know. So, I mean, I guess you'd say the fight is won. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it's never over. As Yogi Berra probably did not say, it's never over till it's over. Uh, but it's been, you know, it's, it's just a challenge uh, taking on this, the, the establishment and winning and winning uh, is a, a lot of fun. And it's been good for investors. That's the important thing. You know, it, it gives you a good moral feeling, a good feeling of service to the community. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful way to, to have a career where, you know, you and probably everybody in this place, after doing my book signing a while ago, that tells me how great it's been for them. And uh, so I like that. There are always risks to your legacies, and affording uh, my fellow Princetonian Don Rumsfeld, they're not only the known unknowns, but the unknown unknown. And uh, you know, who really knows what tomorrow will hold in the way of risk? I do not. Uh, it's hard for me to envision uh, a risk uh, that would fundamentally change the nature of what we do at Vanguard. If we have a big bear market, we will get out exactly as much as the market does, Go figure. So if investors are disappointed, they bought in at high levels, we just haven't done a good enough job educating. That's what they should expect. Uh, I've often told them that uh, whenever I get a chance, I even hinted at this or maybe more than that this morning, we promise you your fair share of whatever returns the market delivers or whatever the returns the market fails to deliver or takes away from you. And uh, I think investors understand that. We've had this great bull market, probably the greatest bull market in all market history, beginning in 1982, the, basically the modern era of the mutual fund industry. And if people think it's going to go on forever, I just hope we've made it clear, at least that we, and I, and I do make it clear, I don't believe it goes on forever. I don't believe trees grow to the sky. Trees definitely do not grow to the sky. Most people are painfully aware of that after the last few months. In closing though, I do need to take a moment to thank everyone who has contributed to this show over the years. 
I'm not going to list names because there are too many, but to everyone who has contributed your time and talents, I sincerely thank you. And especially thank you to all our guests. You are the reason people tune in. Happy 500, everyone.